This is Doug Hastings, Vice President of Moody Radio, and we're thankful for support from our listeners and businesses like United Faith Mortgage. If you go to our mortgage team's website, you'll find hundreds of testimonials of real Christian radio listeners we've helped. Laura here is a recent friend who is kind enough to share a few words with her local station. I was actually referred to United Faith Mortgage through my mother-in-law. We decided it was time for us to start looking for a house, and I reached out to Kelly. And we found several houses we liked, but, you know, with the seller's market, things kept falling through. But anytime we needed her, she was there for us. She got everything we needed as soon as we asked for it, and she made it work. She made sure that if that was the house that our family wanted, we were going to get that house. They're a wonderful company, and we're just really blessed that we found them in the process, that they helped us get through it, and we are in the home of our dreams, and and our family is so happy. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp., 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed mortgage banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. Consider the word embassy. It speaks of influence and diplomacy. Did you know that the United States is represented in no less than 163 embassies globally? And did you know there was such a thing as a Christian embassy in Jerusalem? This is The Land and the Book, and on today's broadcast, we're going to pay a visit to the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem. We'll also look at the latest in your questions, and then we'll go on an insider tour of the night shift in the temple. But first, we need to bring you up to date on all that's happening in the Middle East. Our host is the incurably curious Dr. Charlie Dyer, a lifetime student of the Middle East. Welcome, Charlie. I am incredibly curious about <laughs> everything, and it, it stands me in good stead. I think so. Charlie, looking forward to that insider tour that you call Night Shift in the Temple. Sounds fun. Yeah, if anybody's ever worked third shift, I think they'll appreciate this. Now, last week, we invited people to uh, participate in a book blast, a giveaway of three books, The Characters of Easter from Moody Publishers, uh, Charlie's Christian Traveler's Guide to the Holy Land from Moody Publishers as well, and then the book Raised on the Third Day, very fitting for this Easter season we've come through. We got all kinds of email, and Charlie, are you ready for the announcement of our winner? Yeah, I've actually been looking forward to this with excitement. Yeah. Well, our winner is Carol Mathis. Let me read you just a bit of what she shared. I have learned so much from the land and the book and love to share it with others. Recently, I have started teaching a senior adult ladies Bible study after teaching children for 40 years. I refer to information that I have heard on Saturday mornings in my class to keep them updated on the latest news. The main thing I have gained is a new love for the land of Israel. Our church provides study kits so that we have maps that go along with each lesson. And one of our ladies has been to Israel and has told me that I need to go there because I'm so interested in the land that I would see each study in a new way. Get this now, Charlie. The ladies know that I will always point out on the map where the study is from that day. And they surprised me on my birthday with seed money for my Israel trip. My dream is to go with the Moody Group when we can travel again. I thank you for opening this new part of my life. Wow. Isn't that a great letter? Oh, that's a great letter. And Carol, you will love that trip to Israel. We heard from all kinds of folks, as I said, including uh, an Israeli believer who joins us uh, from the United States, a Jewish Messianic believer, and so many others. Thank you for your kind comments. 
And if you didn't win, hey, hang in there. We'll have another book blast in the future. All right, today's current events. After meeting with all the different parties in the Knesset, Israel's president has given the mandate to form a new government to Netanyahu and the Likud party. Now, how likely is that Netanyahu will be able to form a new government and what might we expect to see over the next month? Yeah, he received the mandate this past Tuesday. Now, in one sense, it isn't surprising. Since the Likud party received the largest number of seats in the Knesset and the largest number of recommendations from all the other parties. But that doesn't mean that Netanyahu is going to be able to form a coalition. He was recommended by parties representing 52 of the 120 Knesset members. Yair Lapid, the second place one, got the backing of 45 members. And Naftali Bennett received the backing of the seven members of his own party. Now, if Netanyahu can persuade Bennett to join his coalition, He would have 59 votes, but that's still too short of the 61 needed to form a majority government. So the question is, where will those votes come from? Well, the natural choice would be the six seats in Gideon Sa'ar's New Hope Party, but Sa'ar campaigned on a promise to never join a Netanyahu government. Uh, He'll be faced with the prospect of either going back on his campaign promise or being held responsible should Israel be forced to go to a fifth election. That's a lot of pressure on Sa'ar. Another option for Netanyahu is to form a minority government by having the Islamic Ra'am party agree not to vote against his government without necessarily becoming a coalition partner. But that could be a dangerous move since Ra'am officially equates Zionism with racism and calls for the right of return for all Palestinians, which would effectively destroy the state of Israel. And there's nothing to keep them from voting against the government at any point in the future. It would be a very weak minority coalition government. Uh, Yair Lapid is still trying to persuade Bennett and others to join him in an anti-Netanyahu coalition, but uh, that would require Bennett and Sa'ar to join with the Arab joint list. That'd be something very troubling to their supporters. So it's really a mess right now. Now, there's another issue compounding the process, and that's Netanyahu's corruption trial, which is taking place right now. The testimony of the first witness is front-page news in television and in print, and since the prosecutor goes first, everything being said is very damaging to Netanyahu, and it's going to make him harder to recruit other members of the Knesset to join his coalition. So we'll need to watch this next month to see if Netanyahu can work his magic one last time and pull a coalition out of his hat. Well, last week, Jordan's security services may or may not have thwarted an attempted coup against King Abdullah. What do we know about the events that took place? Yeah, it depends in large part on which uh, news source you choose to believe. The initial reports were that top officials, including members of the royal family, were caught plotting to overthrow the king in what was called a complex and far-reaching plot. Uh, Former Jordanian crown prince Hamza bin Hussein was placed under restrictions in his Amman palace, while more than a dozen others were arrested. Uh, The plot was said to have been foiled just before it took place. But here's the problem. Prince Hamza denied there ever was a conspiracy to overthrow the king, and an audio recording surfaced where Jordan's army chief can be heard saying the authorities were trying to silence the prince for meeting with internal critics. So Prince Hamza had been speaking out against corruption in Jordan and against the government's economic performance. He'd urged the government to take action against corruption. As someone said, the things Prince Hamza and his friends were talking about in the palace were no different than what the average Jordanians were saying about the government in their own homes every night. So was there an actual plot or is this a case where the government overreacted to criticism by individuals whom they perceived as a threat? Well, without the backing of the army, any potential coup would have had no chance of succeeding and Hmm. the prince would have known that. So it looks like it wasn't an actual coup attempt. But the events do highlight the reality that 
Jordan's leadership is concerned about potential threats. From Moody Radio, it's The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger looking at current events. Well, Palestinian parliamentary elections are scheduled in just six weeks on May the 22nd, and the final slates of candidates have now been released. Do the lists of candidates provide any hint as to how the election might go? Uh, and we thought Israel's elections were complex. This one's just as bad. They have 36 different lists or slates of candidates that have been approved to run in the election. Uh, obviously, it's dominated by Fatah and Hamas, the, the two major parties in the country. But there's a so-called freedom list. It's a slate of candidates led by a nephew of Yasser Arafat and endorsed by Marwan Barghoudia, a Palestinian terrorist serving a life sentence in an Israeli jail who's probably more popular than Abbas himself. Mohammed Dalan, another Abbas critic, living in exile in Abu Dhabi, is backing another list. Former Palestinian Authority Prime Minister Salam Fayyad, who was a World Bank official with a track record of fighting corruption, is supporting still another list. But right now it's unknown how the different lists are going to do in the election. In fact, the release of the list of candidates was really overshadowed by reports that President Abbas uh, went to Germany for what was described as routine medical treatments, but it caused uh, concerns about his health. You know, he's 85, he has underlying health problems, including heart trouble, and there's concern about a power struggle should he be unable to continue as president. Now, if he is ailing, and we don't know that he is, it could impact how well his Fatah party does in the upcoming elections. Now, all that to say, John, the next six weeks are going to be very interesting. Well, recent news reports claim that a 2,600-year-old copy of Deuteronomy was discovered, making it the oldest Dead Sea Scroll ever found. The headlines were sensational. I saw them. But what's the reality behind them, Charlie? Is this a blockbuster discovery, or is there maybe less to this story than meets the eye? There's a lot less than meets the eye here, John. The fact that the fragments were supposedly found by Bedouin shepherds in caves near the Dead Sea, that's why the discovery was compared to the Dead Sea Scrolls. But the fragments were found on the east side of the Dead Sea in the Arnon River in Jordan. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found on the west side, so it really doesn't have any connection to Qumran or the Dead Sea Scrolls. In addition, uh, there are two other problems. First, we don't have the manuscript. We have a handwritten copy of it that was supposedly discovered in the late 1800s, but the original fragments have either been lost or are in private collection somewhere. So as a result, there's no way to test them to know if they're genuine or a forgery. And the fellow who claimed to discover them had been connected with other forgeries in the past. My second problem is the manuscript supposedly shows that the original book of Deuteronomy in our Bibles isn't accurate. Uh, this manuscript is said to have left out large sections of the book as we know it, and that leads to an evolutionary bias in, in the assumptions. That, that is, people are saying, well, this book was shorter, that must be the original, and somehow other things were added to the book of Deuteronomy over time. But in reality, the book of Deuteronomy is structured as a suzerainty vassal treaty. That's a fancy word, but it's a kind of treaty that was written around the time of Moses. The book we have is actually more accurate than uh, this supposed manuscript. So anyway, until someone can produce the fragments, I'm not getting too excited over this so-called discovery. Well, I hope you've got appropriate uh, formal attire with you because we're heading off to the International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem in a conversation you don't want to miss. That's all ahead on today's edition of The Land and the Book. Consider the word embassy. It speaks of influence, diplomacy, urgency. 
The United States is represented in 163 embassies across the globe. But what if I told you there was such a thing as a Christian embassy? And what if I told you it was based in Jerusalem? This is The Land and the Book, and I'm John Geiger. Glad you're along for today. We're about to pay a visit to the International Christian Embassy, Jerusalem. But first, a quick conversation about loving our Jewish friends and neighbors right here at home. When you think of conversations, there are door openers and door closers, things that kind of stimulate the talk and things that kind of dump a bucket of cold ice water on that conversation. Justin Crone with Chosen People Ministries is here with a door opener for your conversation with a Jewish friend. In the course of building friendships uh, with Jewish people, hopefully your faith is going to come up. Uh, it's not something that you should be ashamed of. In fact, your Jewish friend is going to expect you to, at some point, talk about faith. In fact, Jewish people, they're not afraid to talk about religion or money and politics, uh, like some people in our world are. So uh, when it comes to that conversation, ask good questions. Uh, how about, how does God reveal himself to you? Or how do you think God reveals himself to the world? Have, have you ever really considered how God expresses who he is? And, and listen to what they have to say. I, I would think ultimately for you, it's going to come down to, well, God revealed himself through the scriptures, through his word. And ultimately, of course, uh, he did even better than that by revealing himself through the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, uh, through Jesus the Messiah. And so just simply asking, how does God reveal himself to you, is really oftentimes a good way to get that conversation going. That's Justin Crone, who serves with Chosen People Ministries, here today on The Land and the Book. For more than 35 years, Susan Michael has pioneered the development of the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem in the United States and around the world. She currently serves as the ministry's USA director and is a member of the ICEJ's International Board of Directors. Her involvement began as a graduate student at Jerusalem University College back in 1980, the same year that the Christian embassy was first established. Susan is often called upon to address complex and sensitive issues like anti-Semitism, Islam, Jewish-Christian relations, and current events in the Middle East to a diverse range of audiences— Susan and her husband lived and worked for many years in Washington, D.C., where she developed a close working relationship with the Israeli embassy and strong connections within the U.S. Jewish community at large. They currently reside in South Florida. Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book, Susan. Thank you, John. It is so great to be with you today. So what exactly is a Christian embassy? Well, it's a very unique ministry and organization headquartered in Jerusalem, started in 1980 when all of the embassies in Jerusalem actually moved out in protest of it being the capital of the state of Israel. There were a group of Christians living there for a number of different reasons. I had just arrived to begin a master's degree, and uh, this group of Christian leaders announced they did not support what their governments had done. And uh, therefore, they were starting an international Christian embassy in Jerusalem that represented millions of Bible-believing Christians around the world who understood the significance of Jerusalem to the Jewish people and stood with Israel at that moment. So that's how we started, and that's how we have the name that we have, and we really have functioned as a spiritual embassy for millions of Bible-believing Christians. 
And our mission statement from day one was right out of Scripture, Isaiah 40, verse 1, which says, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, says the Lord, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And so we've been there for 40 years now as a ministry of just Christian love and support to the people of Israel. So where in Jerusalem is the embassy located? Well, over the years, we've been in several different locations. We right now are in the area called Talpiot, which is near the area that we hope is going to become the future embassy row Hmm. as more and more countries open their embassies in Jerusalem. We're talking today with Susan Michael of the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem. And I'm wondering, you know, one of your stated objectives is to equip and teach the worldwide church regarding God's purposes for Israel and the nations of the Middle East. Give me an example, though, of how this is actually done. What does it look like? Well, one of the first things that started happening in our ministry was branches began to pop up in countries around the world of wanting to be connected to what we were doing in Jerusalem. So we now have representation and branch offices in over 90 countries. And so it's in those branch offices, and that's my role. I'm the director for the United States branch. So I'm, I'm based here in the United States. And uh, one of the major responsibilities is to educate the Christians here in the United States. So we've done that by developing seminars we do in churches. We've developed an educational website called IsraelAnswers.com. We have published uh, booklets, and most recently we have started uh, study tours to Israel. So uh, in any way, for the individual or for the church or for the community, we have different tools available uh, to educate them about Israel, about Christian support for Israel, and many issues like anti-Semitism and current events in the Middle East and et cetera, et cetera. How do you navigate the tension that seems to exist? On the one hand, Israel is grateful for the friendship of evangelical Christians from America, but on the other hand, not terribly supportive of Israelis who decide to follow Christ. Well, you know, we're very aware of the history that we step into once we begin to engage the Jewish people. And it's a history that a lot of Christians are not actually aware of, but we're painfully aware of it, the history of Christian anti-Semitism and the persecution of the Jewish people at the name of Christ. And so we all step into that history, Mm -hmm. and the Jewish people believe and have been taught by history that Jesus brings bigotry and hatred. Mm -hmm. So he has been seen as the enemy, and we have been seen as the enemy. And over the 40 years of our ministry, we have seen so much of that relaxed as we have proven to them, Jesus actually brings love, yes. and we love you, and it's an unconditional love, and we're just here to bless you and stand with you. And that has made a big difference in Jewish-Christian relations, but as you say, there's another frontier of that tension, and that is Jews that believe in Jesus mm-hmm. in Israel. They're pioneering a whole relationship that it, it also is progressing The walls are coming down, um, but they are very, very steep walls, and it's going to take a while. Yeah. Susan Michael is USA Director of International Christian Embassy Jerusalem. Your vision is to reach every segment of Israel's society with a Christian testimony of comfort and love. I'd like to hear a favorite story from you that uh, illustrates this vision in action. Well, we do that in very practical ways, let me just preface 
by saying that over the 40 years, we have provided what we call social assistance or practical assistance in almost every village in Israel, and we make an effort to reach out to all different types of Israelis. Um, we have particularly helped new immigrants and the needy, but we have another really special ministry, and that is to Holocaust survivors. So in the city of Haifa, we sponsor and help to run the largest home for Holocaust survivors in all of Israel. Hmm. And these are people that really looked hatred in the face. And many times these Nazi soldiers, you know, they were wearing a little iron cross. And no matter what we might say that that didn't stand for true Christianity, they didn't know that. Right. And here in their elder years, as they're needy and they're lonely, and many of them have suffered nightmares their whole life, here they are being cared for by Christians, uh, most of them German-speaking volunteers that we Hmm. put in the home, just loving on them and showing them the true face of Jesus. As I said earlier, it's a face of love, Hmm. and it has healed so many broken hearts and has brought peace and respect and dignity to people that have really suffered for decades. Susan Michael's involvement with the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem began as a graduate student at Jerusalem University College in 1980, the same year that the Christian Embassy was first established. She's our guest today on The Land and the Book. Hey, what does it mean practically to bring comfort and love to Israelis? You talked about this home for Holocaust survivors. What's another favorite story? You know, when you think about your years there with with the organization, what's a classic story that says, this is why we do what we do? Yes, well, uh, we have also, when I say practical, uh, we help bring home Jews that are immigrating to Israel. And some of them are fleeing hardship. Some of them are leaving because of the rise of anti-Semitism. Others are just drawn. They feel like, I want to go be with my people and fulfill out my years. And so, One of the very special projects that we've been involved with in what we call Aliyah, that's the Hebrew term uh, for immigrating to Israel, is helping to bring home the lost tribe of Manasseh. Now, they have been in exile for over 2,500 years since the Assyrian exile that we read about in the Old Testament. And it's believed that the lost tribe of Manasseh, as we call them, the tribe of Manasseh followed the Silk Route. They ended up in China. And after a time of persecution, they ended up in India, where they've been for centuries. Hmm. And the rabbinic authority in Israel approved them that they are of Jewish descent and that they were welcome to come home. And so we have had the privilege of flying home over a thousand what's called B'nai Manasseh, which means the son of Manasseh, the children of Manasseh, home to Israel after 2,500 years. Now, you can't get more special than that testimony. What does it look like uh, when you're there? What are the expressions on their faces? How, How do they react to arriving? Oh, on the immigrants that are coming home? Yes. Oh, it's like they've come home. And many times they bend over and they, they kiss the tarmac. They, they kiss the ground because they have for centuries been told next year in Jerusalem. Hmm. They've been taught this longing for Zion, and they never thought that they would make it. And here 
they make it home and yeah. uh, they will face hardships. It's not all easy, right. you know, starting a new life in a new country, but they have a sense of coming home and it's very special to see that. Well, this is all well and good, but I bet there's some opposition along the way. What is your greatest source of opposition and how do you manage it? Well, um, you know, I'd say that in opposition, we're, we're always up against a little bit of skepticism in the Jewish people because, as we mentioned earlier, that long history. And so mm-hmm. there may be questions, why are you really doing this? Uh, you have to have a hidden agenda. Um, you have to be doing this uh, for something that you want me to do. And so that's an obstacle that we encounter a lot. Um, but like I say, it's getting better and better and less and less. Um, I'd say another obstacle is that we have growing anti-Semitism in the world. Yes. And unfortunately, it's even growing within the Christian camp. And it pains me to say that. It's something that we have got to fight back against. And um, it's going to be a growing obstacle uh, for the future of our work. Susan Michael works with Arabs, Jews, and Christians from many national and denominational backgrounds, uniquely equipped to handle delicate topics central to an understanding of Israel with extraordinary clarity and grace. It's an honor to speak with her today on The Land and the Book. Hey, what's your sense of how the Israeli government perceives the International Christian Embassy? Well, the Israeli government is very, very appreciative of Christian support for Israel and Prime Minister Netanyahu is absolutely leading the way in that, and he always has throughout his tenure. He has expressed appreciation for and has had a, an open relationship with many Christian organizations and leaders. I don't know who's going to follow the prime minister. Uh, one day he will no longer be prime minister. Let's right. hope it's not any day soon, but one day he will be replaced. Who's going to replace him? And will they be from the more liberal secular camp, which has less of an appreciation for Christians? Mm -hmm. Or will it be from a more radical right-wing camp that also doesn't have an appreciation for Christians? We don't know. Um, But the mainstream Israeli Orthodox religious person, not of either extreme, does have an appreciation. And we encounter it all the time. They're very grateful for our work. Susan, in 10 seconds, last question, your top prayer request for International Christian Embassy Jerusalem. I think that as the world is changing all around us quickly, we're all battling that, that the Lord would bless us with the just the right strategies for reaching a new generation of Christians in a very different world. And that's Susan Michael, International Christian Embassy Jerusalem. USA Director, thanks for your time. Great to get to know more about your ministry. We'll connect again sometime. Thank you, John. It was great to be with you today. And Charlie Dyer steps back in to answer your questions next on The Land and the Book. It's The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Glad to be back with you on this third segment of the broadcast. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, and it's time to open up the email questions that have come in from you. We'll start with Hong's question. Should we consider Solomon truly wise? 
I love this question, Charlie. I've wondered it too. He says, I've always thought wisdom is not just having head knowledge and being smart, but instead acting godly and properly with the knowledge that God gave us. I've always been bothered with Solomon's many wives, bothered that Solomon built temples to foreign gods for these wives and led Israel into idolatry. I agree Solomon was smart, but the question is whether or not he was truly wise. Any thoughts here? Yeah, and I'll start by saying you're exactly right. There is a huge gap between knowledge and wisdom. The world has a lot of smart people, but not a lot of wise ones. And that's because, as Solomon wrote in Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Someone who knows, understands, and then obeys God's commands because of a reverential awe of God is a person who is becoming truly wise. But not to answer your question, the Bible does say Solomon was wise. Uh, In 1 Kings 4, we're told that God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind. Uh, One chapter later, we're told that uh, the Lord gave wisdom to Solomon just as he promised him. So I have to conclude Solomon was a very wise man. Now, however, neither knowledge nor wisdom by itself will guarantee success in life. Solomon started well. He had tremendous God-given wisdom, but at some point in his life, he felt he was so smart he could bend the rules and Mm -hmm. still be successful. He knew what God had said, but he felt he could cross the line without crashing and burning. And of course, that proved to be false. His many wives eventually did turn his heart away from the Lord for a good portion of his life. Now, I do like the fact that Ecclesiastes, which I think was written at the end of his life, uh, we see Solomon saying, hey, I tried all these things. They don't work. And at the very end of the book, he says, here's what's been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. I think he ended his life affirming what he originally said in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom starts by fearing God and obeying what he said. Uh, Solomon made some stupid life choices along the way, but in the end, apparently, he did return to the wise path of life. Richard says, I corrected a friend yesterday when he called Judea and Samaria the West Bank. I told him the West Bank is not mentioned in the Bible. He told me there's nothing wrong in referring to Judea and Samaria as the West Bank. What are your thoughts? Yeah, and this is actually going to be more difficult to answer than it might seem. Uh, West Bank is the common designation for that kidney-shaped area that's the heart of the current struggle between Israel and the Palestinians. Uh, The name actually comes from the period between 1948 and 1967 when Jordan occupied the land. They annexed it. Now, no other countries in the world really uh, accepted their annexation, but they referred to it as the West Bank of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. In other words, it was part of their kingdom located on the west side of the Jordan River. Well, that long name and the history gotten lost, but the shortened form West Bank has remained. Now, in Israel, it's referred to as Judea and Samaria from the biblical terms or as disputed territory, uh, which depends in many ways on the uh, political perspective of the Israeli who's speaking. Now, that last term is probably the most correct for today since the final disposition of the land hasn't yet been decided. Israel hasn't annexed it uh, apart from the area around Jerusalem. Now, I refer to the land in a variety of names, and what I think is the best way to do it is to use the right name for that time period. It was Canaan in the patriarchal period up to the conquest. It became Israel from the conquest through Solomon, and then it got divided into Israel in the north, Judah in the south, until the time of the Babylonian captivity. Uh, From that point on, it was known as Judea and Samaria and Galilee until the time of the Roman emperor Hadrian. He's the one who changed the name of the entire region to Palestina, a Philistine land. And Palestine became the geographical designation 
up till the end of World War II. Hmm. Uh, the terms Israel, the West Bank, Gaza were used to designate different areas from 1948 till 1967. And following the Six-Day War, that area we're talking about is either Judea, Samaria, Disputed Territory, or West Bank. I find myself using all three interchangeably, which is probably an internal inconsistency on my part. Anyway, I ramble, but all that to say, <laughs> you and your friend probably should either agree to disagree or or else use disputed territory as a more neutral but still accurate description since the final status of that land hasn't yet been decided. Lynn takes us to the Gospels with her question, why did Jesus curse the fig tree because it had no figs? It wasn't the season for figs. And I know Jesus had a reason I'm trying to understand this passage better. Yeah, you know, Mark 11 says he didn't find any figs on the tree because it wasn't the season for figs. And we often assume that means Jesus must have been expecting more from this tree than was even possible. However, while the season for figs is in the summer, not the spring, the reality is that any fig tree with leaves should have some fruit, though it won't yet be mature. Uh, From my own observations, I can say that if a fig tree has leaves, one should also expect to find some fruit on that tree as well. So the question then is, why did Jesus curse the tree for not having fruit? Well, in that passage, it was actually to teach a lesson to his disciples. And that lesson was, as Jesus said it, to have faith in God. He, he used the sudden withering of the tree to illustrate what those who have faith can accomplish. Uh, there's probably also a second reason for the uh, event. Uh, the Jewish people were claiming to be waiting for the Messiah to come. They were like a tree in, in leaf, ready for the, for the kingdom. And yet when the Messiah showed up, what it really revealed was uh, they were professing, but they didn't possess. Uh, They were trees that didn't have the fruit of righteousness within them. So in that sense, they were a picture of Israel about to be judged for their sin of rejecting their Messiah. Questions. That's what this segment is all about on The Land and the Book. Your questions. Get yours to Charlie Dyer with an email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Mike listens to us on 107.9 FM in Spokane, Washington on Moody Radio Northwest. He says, I recently received a copy of The Scriptures, an Old and New Testament translation produced by the Institute for Scripture Research. How accurate is this translation? I don't want to waste my time on something I shouldn't be reading. It's claimed to be the most accurate translation of ancient scriptures. Sounds good, but is it really? Yeah, and I, I need to start this way. I've not really used this version of the Bible, though I've done some research on it. And while the translators do claim that they've improved on the text by making it a closer translation to, quote, the original language, that statement assumes that the original language for the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, was Hebrew and Aramaic. While Jesus, the disciples, and the apostles might have spoken in Hebrew and Aramaic, the New Testament was written originally in Greek, not Hebrew. Now, that's important because there are times when this translation appears to change the original Greek to try and make it fit into what they believe the Hebrew would have been. Uh, That's most clearly evident when they insert Hebrew names for God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But here's my take on that, uh, and actually on most translations. Anyone wanting to do a careful study of God's Word ought to have and use several translations, not pick and choose what they like best for any given passage. And by comparing versions, they can see how most competent Bible scholars believe the original text ought to be best translated. You'll discover that for most passages, translators generally agree. Uh, When a given translation seems to be greatly different from the others, a good student of the Bible should look at that translation with great caution. The Land of the Book podcast is a must-listen for me every week, and I often share it with my adult Sunday school class, says Harold. Thanks for those uh, kind words. Appreciate your sharing the podcast with your friends, by the way. 
His question, I'm fascinated by the Christmas story in the Old Testament. I see the pastures of Bethlehem as home to Jacob, mourning for Rachel, uh, the venue for Ruth and Boaz's amazing romance, the scene of David doing his undergraduate work, preparing for kingship, and the place where Barzillai's son, Kimham, settled and founded an inn, and where Micah foresaw the Christ coming to the Tower of the Flock. Daniel provides the backdrop for the Magi, and I want to explore these themes on firm, exegetical, and historic ground. What are some good resources? Yeah, you know, i got to start by saying uh, you're already doing an excellent job of pulling things together by comparing Scripture with Scripture. I, I would think it's pretty fair to say very few of our listeners even know the story of Kimham, let alone know how that account in the life of David connects with Bethlehem through Jeremiah 41. That's the kind of Bible trivia that I personally find fascinating. And about the only detail I would add uh, to those other accounts you cited would would be to include the first 10 verses in Isaiah 60 to help identify the location of the Magi. But let me focus on the larger issue you've asked. What other resources are available uh, to find reliable details on Bible backgrounds? Well, I'd suggest you look at the works of Alfred Edersheim, E-D-E-R-S-H-E-I-M. He wrote The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, which, along with several other books, are available free online. His material is over a century old, but it has some incredible gems in it. A second online resource is the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. Uh, This five-volume set was originally published in 1939. Uh, A newer edition was made, but the original still has some solid resources in it, and it's available free online. Uh, You can look up places and individual topics in it and find some good material there. I'd also encourage people to have a good study Bible a good Bible atlas like the Moody Atlas of the Bible, and a good commentary, well, like like the Moody Commentary on the Bible. Uh, By having those resources, people can dig into the Bible in uh, just amazing ways to find out what God has said. When was the last time you visited our website? Maybe today's the day you'd like to do that. Check out information about our guests, past programs, future programs, links there as well to books that Charlie's written. Check it all out at thelandandthebook.org. And if you didn't hear your question answered today, and if you emailed it, it's coming. If you didn't email it, here's our address, thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Charlie's devotional is next. Keep it right here. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger saying thank you for staying with us. Question, are you a morning person or a night person? My wife sometimes jokes her best hours of the day are between 10 and 2. (laughs) That is 10 in the morning and 2 p.m. I'm definitely a morning person. If you're a night person, maybe you've worked a time or two at a second shift or a third shift. The night shift is something we're looking at in Charlie Dyer's devotional. We'll get to that after this Holy Land experience. Listen. Hi, my name is Eric, and my Holy Land experience was in May of last year. The most profound moment for me while in Israel was um, the whole time you're wondering, did Jesus walk here? Did Jesus touch this this place? Just wanting to be so much closer to our Lord. And um, the greatest moment came for me in the basement of Caiaphas' house, uh, the prison cell where Jesus was held. I know that um, Jesus was lowered through that two-and-a-half by two-foot space in the rock chiseled above through Caiaphas' house into the basement. And it's just amazing. It was like an, it's like an hourglass. The world 
tapered down to that two-foot hole. And I was incredibly moved when we shut the lights off in the basement, in the prison, in the, the lower room. It was completely dark. And just we read the psalm of Jesus crying out in the darkness. And it was just so moving, so powerful for me that I wept. I mean, the Holy Land is an amazing experience, just being able to see the places in the Bible. And then when I come back to the States and recounting those places vividly in my mind as I read them, this is what it looked like. This is the diameter of the place. It was just an incredible time for me. Along with the fellowship of fellow students going over there and, and time spent with my professor who had such a vast knowledge of, of the, the Bible and, and the places that happened and the relevance to our Christian faith, it was just incredible. And I'm so thankful for Moody the knowledge of the professors here and they're they're pouring into their students, especially on intimate trips such as the Holy Land experience. It was a great moment for me in my walk with the Lord, one I'll never forget. Thank you so much. So if you're a morning person like me, the thought of working the second or third shift as a night watchman, it's enough to give you the creeps. But Charlie, I understand you have an experience that uh, you remember from your more youthful days that has everything to do with night shifts. What you got? When I was in high school, I had a friend who worked for a while as a night watchman at a local textile company. One night, I drove to the mill to visit Danny and walked with him as he made one of his hourly rounds through the factory. That was the first time I ever saw a night watchman's clock, a round clock with a leather case and a key slot at one end. As we walked the floors, Danny would stop at different spots and insert a key that was hanging there into the clock, which would then record the time he visited that location. The clock served a very useful purpose. The job of the night watchman was to guard and protect the building when nobody else was around. But who was there to make sure the night watchman didn't take a little siesta himself? The night watchman's clock was really designed to make sure the night watchman was awake and patrolling the factory on a regular schedule. It helped keep him faithful at a time when no one else was around to check up on him. And that got me thinking, What would it have been like to work the night shift at the temple in Jerusalem? In his book, The Temple, Its Ministry and Services, Alfred Edersheim helps provide the answer. He describes the many activities that took place during the evening in the temple. The worshipers were gone, the massive doors were closed, but the work continued. The entire complex had to be guarded. The menorah had to be kept lit, its bowls filled with olive oil and its wicks trimmed. The courtyards needed to be cleaned and all the funds collected the previous day had to be counted. The wood for the altar of sacrifice had to be replenished and the animals for the next day's sacrifice had to be selected. There was much to do and the work couldn't be outsourced. It had to be done by the priests and Levites. So imagine you're a priest assigned to the night shift in the temple. You report to work just as the evening sacrifice is being offered and as the final worshipers are getting ready to leave and head home. It might be exciting the first day or two, but then reality sets in. It's dark at night and it gets cold. It's hard to work all night and then try to sleep during the day. And all the excitement of ministering before the mass of visitors is missing. Who really cares if you're in charge of filling the oil lamps on the menorah at midnight? In Exodus 28, God may have commanded Aaron and his sons to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening till morning, but it wasn't a glamorous job. And that's why I love Psalm 134, the final psalm of the 15 that are arranged together into the Songs of Ascents. 
These psalms were grouped together to be sung by the pilgrims ascending or coming up to Jerusalem to celebrate the three great feasts of the Lord when all Israel was to gather together. And Psalm 134 is the last psalm in the group, the one that concludes the time as the pilgrims get ready to head back to their homes. The psalm itself is very short, a mere three verses, yet it has much to say to those working the night shift. The psalm is a psalm of blessing, and it divides into two parts, each of which has a different speaker and a different audience. In verses 1 and 2, the people of Israel are the ones speaking, and their words are addressed to the priests specifically to the priests going on night duty. These two verses begin and end with the people calling on these priests to bless the Lord. It's not that the priests were being asked to somehow impart a special blessing to God. God is already perfect. We can't add to his perfection. When the word bless is used with reference to God, it's referring to our act of worship or adoration. The word can also mean to kneel. And it's in that sense we bless God as we adore him on bended knee, so to speak, acknowledging his supreme glory and greatness. The people identified these priests as servants of the Lord and those who literally stand by night in the house of the Lord. As the crowds leave to go home, the priests on the night shift begin their work that's out of the public eye and that might seem less glamorous. But the crowd's parting words remind these priests that their ministry is to the God of the universe. That's who they're serving. That's who they're standing before all night. And that's who they're seeking to worship and adore through their actions. It's almost as if the crowd is foreshadowing Paul's words to the believing slaves in the city of Ephesus, where Paul called on them in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart with goodwill rendering service to the Lord and not to men. In the very same way, the people now leaving Jerusalem call on the priests to continue serving God at night even when others aren't around to see or voice appreciation for what they're doing. Then in the final verse of the psalm, the priests return the favor, calling on God to bless the departing crowd. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. The priests use the same word for bless, but now as the mediators between God and the people, they're asking God to extend his blessing to the people. The crowds might be heading home from Mount Zion, but the priests are asking God to bless them on their journey. So what lessons can we learn from this short psalm? I'd like to suggest two. First, no task is menial if it's done to serve God. Whether it's filling lamps with oil in the middle of the night or changing diapers in the church nursery, if we're serving God, then our work has significance. And even if others don't see or appreciate what we're doing, God does. Second, we need to pause and show appreciation to those around us who are serving on the spiritual night shifts of life. Just as the people acknowledge the importance of the priests who served by night in the house of the Lord, so we need to show appreciation for those who serve in less public ways. This coming Sunday, stop by the church nursery and tell all the workers how much you appreciate them. Or walk up to the custodian or parking attendant or greeter and tell them how much you appreciate their service for Christ. Remember, the gift of gratitude is one gift you can give that enriches others without ever impoverishing you. (laughs) Neat thought. Thanks, Charlie. Maybe you could share some of your gratitude for the station that airs the land and the book with an email or maybe an old-fashioned card. 
I know they'd appreciate knowing that this program means something to you, that it encourages you. You know, station managers have to make decisions on the content that they carry on a quarterly or even more regular basis. So let them know that you appreciate the land of the book by sending a card or email today. Thanks for doing that. And thanks for uh, hanging out with us on the land and the book. You know, it takes a team to put this thing together. That team includes Dan Anderson, our co-producer. He faithfully edits out all the mistakes that the rest of us make. And our host, of course, Dr. Charlie Dyer, the one and only, putting it all together. I'm John Gager, thanking you for listening and thanking you for writing that card or email to this station as well to say thank you. The Land of the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.